Good afternoon and welcome to the Emerging Tech series of the Leadership and Insurance podcast. This is the podcast where we speak to technology executives, founders and leaders. And today I'm very lucky to be joined by CTO Loris from Loro InsureTech. Loris, welcome. How are you doing? Thank you, Gavin. Doing great. Happy to be on your podcast. So thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. It's it's great to have you on. I'm glad that we managed to to get it. And it's always very rare, but it's always great when we get to meet in person, which you and I did at, um, at ITC Barcelona, which was um, which was a lot of fun. Yeah, it, it was great. And uh, thank you for stopping by at our booth. Uh, did not expect that, but it was um, good to see you in person. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did try and get your attention on the booking app, but we won't go into that, that booking app. It was, uh, yeah, it's um, temperamental, to say the least. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, no, I love meeting you guys, love hearing about what you're doing in, within the realms of specialty insurance. And there's so much to unpack, even from that meeting that we'll, we'll get into later. But before we get into it, always a great place to start. Let's start a little bit about your career backgrounds you know how did you get into tech and and into the world of insure tech yeah sure uh, so about the tech um that goes back in the 90s so 1995 more or less uh, i was living in milan in italy and um, i started uh, you know uh, coding these websites uh, that was the era where a webmaster could do it all. You know, from the, the, the design, the back end, the front end. There, there was no such thing as a front and back separation. So it was all about putting your animated GIFs, uh, the stolen MP3 you downloaded from Napster, you know, and uh, <laughs> and create that flashy homepage that you would update every single day. But so that yeah. was in Italy, and um, uh, shortly after, I started uh, studying uh, computer software engineering. And that's when I set up also a nightlife entertaining website. And that was exciting because it was uh, pre-2000. So, uh, and it was amongst the first platform to leverage social contents before even Facebook was around. Uh, so that was a great experience. Learned a lot. It was my first entrepreneurial adventure uh, with a company set up. And, uh, and that lasted about six years that I moved on to Barcelona. Um, I love this city, so I decided to move there. And uh, and I worked for a few months in the e-commerce industry, so payments online and all that stuff, until I bumped into that company, uh, insurance company, uh, Tokyo Marine HEC, by the way. And uh, I was completely uh, surprised by this um, atmosphere. I was seduced straight away by the, the incredible sea view of the office, the vibrant international workspace. Uh, everybody was young. Uh, I thought, wow, that looks really cool. So I might as well uh, give it a try. So I started as a, as an analyst a developer. Um, that was like uh, 13 years ago, 14 years ago. And uh, after a few months and years, I, I, I became uh, head of the IT department for uh, the financial lines uh, in Barcelona. And so that's where I met uh, Peter and Diego, uh, ex-colleagues who are now my partners, uh, co-founders. Um, so they they had a lot of experience. They have a lot of experience on the broking and underwriting side. And the three of us had identified a problem we wanted to fix. So basically, it was uh, distributing insurance products online was extremely expensive and a very slow process. So that uh, three years ago, um, quit 
the job and started uh, Loro Intratech with Peter and Diego. Nice, nice. Um, such a journey. Um, moving to Barcelona and 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 the kind of classic tale of falling into insurance there. Uh, just coming across Tokyo Marine and being uh, seduced, as you say. Um, I think I'm, I'm starting to see a really common theme as someone that's new to insurance and absolutely fell into it myself, you know. Um, but yeah, great journey. And probably for the listeners, it'd be good if you could, you kind of alluded to it there, um, Loris, but who are Loro InsureTech and, and what is the, the mission? Sure. So, so Loro InsureTech, um, it's a US company. So we, we incorporated the company uh, two years ago in the US. So that was back in the days when we still uh, were under COVID lockdowns. So most of the countries mm. were still suff suffering or under a strict lockdown. So we, we could not basically go to a notary. Uh, Diego uh, is living in the US, Peter in Malaga, I'm in Barcelona. We had some uh, initial investors in, all, all around the world. So we could not tell them go to a notary and sign the contract. So we had to pick a place that made it easy. And that place was naturally Delaware. So US um, based. Yeah, so that's that's where the company is, is from. And what it is, uh, we have a very simple mission. Uh, we want to be able to take any insurance product anywhere in the world online immediately with no um, upfront investment. So, so that's our mission. Uh, and uh, our our customers are typically insurance uh, companies or MGAs. So we want to empower them to be able to do these things. Um, that's that's our mission. Um, mm. And one thing that kind of jumped out, I, I don't have the document that um, you did send me away with when I, I visited the stand, but um, the the pricing model that you guys operated in, in the very beginning, there were struggles with uh, minimal viable product and all the kind of classic things when you're when you're building something from the ground. But the, the pricing model was one thing that you guys really not struggled to communicate, but yes, had difficulty with. Would you mind explaining what that looks like and, and, and why sure. it, it was so problematic in the beginning? Yeah, sure. So, you know, one of the problems we want to sol solve it is not only um, expedite the process of launching a new product online, but also reduce or remove altogether the upfront investment. So at the beginning, what we said is, uh, the first thing is, Whoever thinks about launching an intratech, you'll get their pricing wrong. Then you'll get back to it and you'll sort it out over time because you'll, you're, you'll figure some things out. So initially, what we said was um, it's free to start. So there's no upfront investment. And that's still the case today. Mm. However, we, uh, we had a scale of pricing that was basically uh, for, for the first million of premium you transact every year, you pay 5%. And then it went down as you transacted more. Uh, but we completely inverted that so that the small players that only have a book of five or $10 million uh, would not be penalized. You know what I'm saying? So, so we inverted that and said, okay, look, for the first 100K per year, you pay zero. Then it goes up to 1%, up to 25 million, and then down to 0.1%. So this would enable us to say that Loro is completely free until we can prove you that there's a benefit for your company to use it. So we're not charging anything unless Loro is making uh, 
your distribution successful. That, that, that's the idea is that you won't be paying anything. Yeah. And received, was there elements of dubiety on that? Or did investors love it? I'm sure there was probably a little bit of split opinion on it, you know, from the... Yeah, you know, uh, we, we tend to, to like to say that it's free and, you know, it's the only free <laughs> InsurTech online. But when you speak to an investor, they go, hey, that's not what I want to hear. So how do yeah. you make money? So we make money basically uh, by reaching that 100K of premium, and then we make 1%. And uh, we're very confident that um, our companies will like it and they're just going to stick to it. Uh, because as a matter of fact, we're not even asking for a commitment in time of using Lore. If they don't like it, they can stop using it at any time and just leave for another solution. But generally, it was very well received especially in the emerging markets, because, you know, they have smaller budgets than uh, probably companies in the US or in Europe. Um, but for us, the, the tricky part is, you know, if a company does not pay for a service, there is no sense of urgency to start using it. Yeah. So this is, this is where um, there is a little bit of, um, of a debate. Um, however, we think it's a, uh, we think we nailed it after that first mistake uh, over a year ago. And um, we're going to just keep that uh, pricing for the time being. Yeah. yeah, that's great. And the area that you focus on, specialty insurance, is an area that we're kind of constantly seeing more and more growth in. Um, I just wonder, like, what are the kind of common trends that you're seeing within specialty insurance and, and why... Why? Why is it so? Why are certain elements of special insurance so underserved from, you know, insurance companies, larger companies? Like, yeah, yeah. So, so the first thing is, why did we focus on specialty insurance? Uh, it's very simple. Um, Peter and Diego, they they were in specialty insurance. It, it was their okay. bread and butter. So they they really know the industry. So mm. when we speak to an insurance company that does specialty insurance, we speak the same language, and they love yeah. it. So right. that, that's one, one thing. And the other thing is it tends to be an underserved segment because very often um, their books are fairly smaller than, you know, bigger lines like motor or life insurance. So it's not worth investing the millions of dollars that would require, you know, to put in place a policy in system. So they kind of leave it on the side or these lines inherit a tech that is not really um, appropriate. Um, so ba basically, uh, most of the companies we speak to that uh, deal with specialty insurance, they still have no systems at all. Um, that that's mm. that's the truth. Or they get recycled tech that is not adapted to their needs. Um, so so that's that's why we think uh, it's a sector we can tackle better than others uh, because you know Peter and Diego. Um, came from that industry. Plus, um, for a company selling specialty insurance, uh, using Laura would be uh, free to start with as opposed to spending um, huge budgets. Mm. And, and, and you know, I, I would say that also um, specialty lines require a very specialized knowledge. Um, so tend to be um, more expensive underwriters. But if you're doing very small accounts, um, you, you can't be spending a lot of time analyzing all your accounts. So you really need a system to go through that uh, huge 
volume, low premium. Uh, and this is again where we can shine and, and give a solution to these companies. Mm, interesting. And you, just kind of going back to what you said before we answered that question, where you guys feel like you nailed it in the last year or so, you know, what was the kind of, what was the pivotal moment for you? Or what was the, you know, that, what was that moment where you went from a mere idea that seemed like it had legs, seemed like you had product? Where, would, where did it go from that to a viable product in the insured tech space and why? Yeah, sure. Um, so I think the, the, the first question is, uh, we all had a, a slightly different idea, Peter, Diego, and I. Um, yeah. And it's after a lot of brainstorming that we eventually came to the idea that a no-code solution would really um, speed up things dramatically. Uh, we can literally take a company online in two days if they mm -hmm. have all their documents ready. For, on, on our side, it, it's, it's that quick. Um, but the hard part, I would say, is what is an MVP? What is, um, according to you, what is minimum viable for a company? Um, mm -hmm. And this is where it's very easy to get it wrong because we tend to think that we can guess what customers want, but only Steve Jobs really can, can do that. So <laughs> um, what we figured out is when we started demoing the system to companies, uh, we had stuff like, for example, crypto payments or subscriptions. No one actually wanted that. So we quickly removed it. And we started focusing on things that were really the core of the product, which is take an insurance product online through um, a network of brokers if needed, and just make sure all the documentation is dealt with automatically uh, and distributed, and you can collect the payments. Just stick to that and make it work really well. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, so we, we focused on that MVP. And uh, what happens is as you demo the system to companies, they all have different requests. And um, if this is where we can tweak our roadmap and say, okay, you know, that request really makes sense. So we're gonna put it like in top of the line and and make sure we can develop that in next print. So um, yeah, MVP is a very um, broad concept. It's easy to get it wrong. Um, and uh, you know, when you work for two years on a product and you're finally ready to show it to customers, and you start demoing it, it's when you realize that really it's not totally ready, but you're missing one thing. You did one that was not yeah. needed and, and so on. So yeah, it, it's an iterative process. Um, mm. And do you think the, because we're seeing a lot of it now, you know, low codes, quick implementation, you know, allowing in operators to launch products within days and weeks, as you say, do you, do you feel like the, the insurance industry, whilst it's it's a great thing to have, do you think it's actually ready for it in a way? Like, you know, supercharging these incumbents with or, or you know, uh, other insure techs, insurance businesses, do you think we're at that stage where they can and are adopting it the way it should be? I think it's changing very quickly. Um, 10 years ago, they would, um, you know, a traditional insurance company would not engage with a startup of no. five or six people, definitely not, they, they wouldn't. Now, you know, we are having conversations with huge players. However, mm. their requests are very different from small MGAs. You know, the due diligence process is much different. Um, but I, I do think that a low code or no code solution brings a lot of benefit because 
insurance companies are not software companies. Some try to build things in-house and it tends to be very expensive, very slow, and they can get it wrong easily. So that's why I believe they're starting to move to these providers. And then the thing about low code, uh, there's a huge spectrum. Low code can be five weeks or two years. Mm. Uh, you know, you've got some BPMs that are low code, but really um, you need to be a great expert at building um, tools. This is why we chose no code because it enables companies to not dedicate IT resources to implementing uh, the system. So with Loro, you don't need an IT person in-house. You, you may need a business analyst to set up you know, your products, but no IT is needed. Where, however, where I believe there will still need to be some change on the insurance side is expectations. Uh, very often, I think insurance companies, they, they have a, a whole list of requirements um, and they want to meet them all without compromising on any of them. And this is where they end up choosing to do it on their own. And it's uh, complicated. Uh, typically, I would say integrations are, um, are the failing points. Yeah. It's where they, they spend a lot of money, a lot of time, and sometimes they just can't do it, which is why I believe uh, they simply should accept uh, to avoid it and maybe use an API and um, to centralize information with uh, business intelligence tools for reporting, but keep tools separated. I think yeah. this is where, you know, integration sometimes is just maybe um, the cherry on the cake that could be avoided. Mm. It's so interesting when you kind of touch on businesses walking away and then deciding to go their own way and use that closed system. So at Loro, of course, from our chats and you can just, by the way, you, the, the business is set up, it's all open source technologies and the contrast between closed systems at large incumbents and then your open source technology i think is always super interesting how those conversations go um the the impact that it has on scalability the impact that it has on cost effectiveness and efficiency within an insurance company like for you what are the main reasons as to or what are the kind of trends that you see in terms of why they actually do say no because for me they should just be saying yes every time Surely. <laughs> Why they say no to what? Like say no to the integration piece, say no to the tech. It doesn't quite work. We're going to do it our own way. Thank you, though. And, and they walk away. Oh, okay. Well, first of all, I think the closed systems are tend to be the choice for huge corporations uh, because they're not software shops. They, they, they cannot or they may, might not have the skill sets to set up uh, platforms from scratch. So they tend to go with closed systems because they can... Uh, leverage um, customer service and um, that that goes along with the uh, licenses they they pay for whereas if you go uh, with node for example well there's no customer service you, you have to get a developer that knows how to cope with node and you build your own backend and so on this is why they go with uh, these um, these choices and also because they tend to be huge companies like uh, peg or salesforce they're huge they're listed on the stock market so if suddenly their contact point um, leaves the company, they're going to have another one coming in. And 
somehow this um, they like that, uh, which is the opposite of a startup. However, uh, being a startup, we uh, we chose open source because you know it's um, these are the best tools around. Uh, if you're going to build a new web app today, it's going to be based on Node, yeah, Angular or React, uh, Mongo or MySQL. These are the the typical choices that you know even an Airbnb or Gmail are actually uh, using. So mm -hmm. yeah, we we chose that, and it wasn't even there was no doubt about it. There was no doubt like should we use Pega or Node? No, it was more like should we use Node, PHP, Python, or Angular or React? That that was more the uh, the reasoning. Yeah. Mm. And you also I thought it was really interesting switch from. AWS initially went from a technology infrastructure perspective to GC Google Clouds um, due to that more user friendliness. I think it's it's always a question on a lot of businesses' minds, you know, what tech stack do we go with? What infrastructure do we go with? Where do we set up? Like, do you have any can you do you have any kind of tips or or any insight into why getting that right? from the beginning can be such a key component to, you know, the success or failure of your, of your infrastructure. And yeah. What, what, was, what was it for you that really stood apart from the two? Yeah. So this is one, a key component, the infrastructure, So you've got like the developers, the infrastructure, the location of the team, well, the infrastructure, if you get it wrong and you figure it out too late, it's very expensive to move everything to another provider. Um, However, we started with AWS because it's kind of the uh, leading brand out there. If you think about infrastructure mm -hmm. as a service, you think about Amazon. So we started with Amazon, but we were very quickly overwhelmed with um, the name of the services. So for, for example, uh, Google Cloud for the storage service, it's called cloud storage. Uh, Amazon yeah. is called S3. It's like, why? So you've got all these codes and you have to figure out like what's EC2, what's S3. Whereas with Google, so there's a very simple interface um, mm -hmm. for the storage, for the SQL service. So we kind of liked it. And because we could not afford yet uh, a full-time person dedicated to DevOps, we thought we really need a service that is easy to set up. And then you can forget about it because Google deals with it. Google is in charge of scaling the services, uh, the security, the networking, the load balancing and all that. So um, that's why we changed. We were very quickly overwhelmed with um, Amazon and we moved to Google. And by the way, we had a grant of 100K uh, in, in Google. So that was really well received. You know, one year without paying for the service, that's amazing. Um, so... A year passed, and we're still at Google, and we uh, we think we're going to stay there uh, for the time being. Mm, it's 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 interesting to me because a couple of years ago, Google was always seen as the the risky cloud because it was open source to a degree. It's less established like Azure or AWS, and I just find it very interesting now that we're seeing you know companies like Loro and SureTech partner with insurance companies and, and, and all of this stuff is, has Google running through it from the infrastructure perspective. The, again, I think it shows how how much the insurance industry is coming along and catching up with, with everyone else. Yes. Um, uh, yeah, uh, I agree. I mean, you know, the 
the choice for Google was uh, it's kind of natural. I mean, Google is Google, so you, you kind of mm. trust their their security. And and as well, you know, we we run a, a quarterly pen test and uh, just to make sure that things are uh, secured. And so far, it was pretty good the results so we have no reasons to be concerned about um, google's uh, capability of securing mm -hmm. our service <laughs> so um and yes they 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 have um they have a new insurance um sector google so all right we we think it was the right choice really um and, and you know there to be honest, Google, Azure, and, and Amazon, they sell the same thing. It's And, and I would trust the three of them. Um, but just, again, on the user interface and the user experience, Google enabled us to not hire a full-time person dedicated to DevOps. So that was very well received. That's the yeah. real reason why uh, we're going to stick to it right now. Nice. Nice. And uh, one thing I wanted to kind of, cover as well because I find that again how the team is split up you know the founders where, where you originally were based you know you're in Barcelona and companies in Delaware and then um, this, as a startup tech function you guys chose to set up in Mexico um, influenced by a number of uh, decisions you know again which we've spoken about but just for the listeners you know it'd be great to hear what was because again it's just something that when I'm speaking to founders, you know, when on these podcasts and when we're running searches, FinPro, like we, it's one of the key components, you know, location of a team, how are we going to work, um, technology stack, um, infrastructure, and then, of course, overarching that, what problem are we solving, you know, the minimal viable product, et cetera. But you chose to set the team up in Mexico. You're based in Barcelona. How has that decision impacted things like, efficiency and overall work environment and i guess the, the start of my question is more what was the, the kind of thinking behind it sure well you know there's no uh, coincidence really my, my wife is mexican so um i happen to to, <laughs> to know mexico and guadalajara where the, the team is based yeah, a long yeah. time ago and every time i went there i was kind of struck by by the talents and the the excellent workforce that that is there um, specifically on the on the software engineering side so i i always thought um if i ever build or start up a business this is where i want it seemed to be and so why mexico um first of all it's north america so um, it's it's easy to move around from the us to mexico you know there are all these trade agreements and um and secondly the language being um you know the, the country right Right next to the U.S., almost everyone uh, in the in Mexico speaks really well English, plus mm. Spanish, obviously. I mean, uh, so we speak their language. Uh, I know their culture, uh, and these two things really help building um, the right environment. Uh, you know, harmony and and you can make sure that there is a proper communication going on. Uh, Whereas, you know, and that's why we, I did not want to go down the, you know, the path of going to Eastern Europe or Asia, because I don't know these places as well. So it would have been harder for me to set up the right, um, the right environment in the team. Plus, you need to see the team very often. You can't just, you know, hire someone remote and never see them 
ever. This yeah. is why I chose Mexico, but then within Mexico, Guadalajara, so that when I go there, um, uh, I, I can be with them and we can have some events, uh, you know, know each other better. And it's the only way, only way you can uh, make sure there's a proper communication and and you can earn their trust so that they can become more autonomous. Uh, you know, they, they can tell you that you're wrong sometimes and that's that's great. So that's that's why I like that culture in Mexico. And I think uh, so far it played out pretty well. And so we're gonna keep on hiring in Mexico if possible. Mm, very much shares that, has a shared work culture with your vision at Loro. Um, and as you say, well, your wife is Mexican, so <laughs> you're probably there quite a lot. Um, exactly. And it's a lot of potential. But yeah. um, I think, again, and it's not a question specifically to Loro at all. It's more uh, when we have leaders like yourself that are building teams in, in quite far away locations, you know, it's always about empowerment. How do you emphasize empowerment through a remote culture? Um, I know off camera you said you were traveling out there for six months at a critical period of, of Loro's growth, but generally empowering the team, you know, creating that, something that comes up a lot as well in terms of my conversations anyways, that psychological safety of a, a tech and engineering team and how they can innovate and be heard and, and be trusted. Like, how do you kind of foster all of that from Barcelona, for example, is it? Do you have any kind of methods or is it just constant kind of contact? Like what's your kind of strategy there? Um, I, I think there are many factors here. Um, mm. The first one is to not just focus on their skills, on their professional skills, but also on their soft skills. Um, <clears throat> so when there's a team, for example, we, we ask them to be involved in some things that in huge corporations, they wouldn't be. Uh, so for example, when we hire someone, they are involved always because we want to make sure there is a fit with a new hire. We want to make sure they're going to be willing to work together, that it's going to be pleasant. Mm -hmm. If we suspect that um, the person we're about to hire isn't compatible and that there's going to be some clashes, we prefer not to hire. We would rather wait a bit more and make sure that it's always a pleasure to be together. That's one thing, but of course, uh, they need to be excellent at their job as well. And if they are, uh, because very often, if I'm looking for, uh, for example, a QA job or um, a backend engineer, I want them to be much better than what I know. Otherwise, I know I want an expert. So if you hire a great person and they're compatible with the team and you let them speak out and you don't micromanage them, then it's very likely that you're going to reach that great environment. You know, we don't even control when they work, uh, what time, uh, where from. We don't care as long as they deliver a good quality uh, of code regularly and they meet their sprint deliveries. Well, that's mm -hmm. more than enough. If they work twenty hours instead of forty, I don't care. It, it just <laughs> works. It just works. So yeah. that's that's how we we do it. Um, and and I think it's really a lot about empathy. You know, don't, don't ask to do things you wouldn't do yourself, and you know all of that. So yeah, yeah. And in Mexico, did did you have an office to go into, or is everyone in Mexico fully remote? They're all fully remote. Yeah. So that it was funny because I think you asked in the past, like uh, many companies go go back to yeah. office. Yeah. 
but we can't go back. We never had an office because we <laughs> set, we set it up uh, during COVID times. So there was not an office. You would not even you were not allowed probably to have an office. So um, we don't have one yet. Um, there are no current plans on having any. However, we are getting some shared space to gather. Yeah. But, but um, I, I don't think we're going to get an office anytime soon. Um, and that's for the tech side. Then, you know, I'm just talking about the tech side because, and that's Mexico, because the rest of the team um, is, as you said, distributed between the US, Spain, now even Africa. We've got um, a team expanding in Africa as well to tackle the emerging markets down there. But um, but yeah, office right now is not our priority. We, we believe uh, that if it works with that one, we will go, um, we will continue this way. Mm. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it seems you, you never fully build a culture. You know, you're always, always building it, always evolving it. But from a remote perspective, like you said, I highlighted that people are now going back to the office and, and it's all underpinned with people aren't as productive at home and people are lazy. And, and I just hate that. I hate that view on it because we've, there is the data is there to show that people are can be way more productive it's i guess it's just down to the individual as a, as a remote worker at finpro you know i take umbrage to those comments but um i think building a culture is is very difficult to do it fully remote but it seems like something you guys have have got spot on to this point like i guess it's a finishing note you know reflecting on the journey so far at loro you know, what advice do you think you can offer other startups that are aiming to establish a positive, you know, company culture and taking into all the things that you've considered like location, technology? What's your kind of top three things that you would advise to kind of put you on the spot? <laughs> okay, well, I would say um, be very careful um, when spending money. Uh, don't don't so even if you raise money uh, we did raise some money but we're not spending it crazily we're not getting an office so don't don't spend if it's not absolutely required that's my first advice um, try to save every penny you're going to need it at one point yeah. um, secondly I, I would say same thing for hiring don't over hire only hire if it's absolutely needed and uh, and if you do hire Make sure you you get involved and and you create a cohesive cohesive uh, environment where people feel safe, um, safe to challenge you, and that they can trust you. If if you manage that, it's going to be a great journey. And third, um, I would say be patient because it takes longer than what you think. So, um, example, I mean, converting a lead to a customer. It takes longer than what you think. That that's so patience, and this is why don't spend money uh, if it's not <laughs> needed. Because if your timeline gets extended, um, then you know you need to, to you will need to spend money when you didn't plan for it. Yeah. So that that's that's my my advice, and and just make sure you know you focus on your product. Uh, just build the best product ever, and clients will come. Amazing, awesome, Loris. Thank you. What a great way to end it. Um, really appreciate you coming on. It's been a pleasure. And um, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you very much, Gavin. It was a pleasure. You too. Thank you. Have a great day.